This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Here you go. Here you go. Penny, a penny for your thoughts. Nothing personal word of the day today is penny, as in Penny Hardaway. As in 1,150,000 pennies that James Wiseman must donate to charity as a penalty in addition to 12 games that he has to sit out right now. Why did that happen? Very simply, because Penny Hardaway gave Wiseman's mother $11,500 in order to offset moving expenses so that Wiseman could play basketball for Penny's high school team. This is before Penny became a college coach. What I can't understand about the whole situation, Penny Hardaway knows better. He knows very well that giving money to a player's family is a violation of NCAA rules. And now Wiseman has to pay. I wonder if he'll give rolls of pennies in order to pay that fine. In breaking news right now, we're here on CBS Sports HQ, and the breaking news is that the NFL, and not a surprise at all, has decided to uphold the Miles Garrett suspension. You'll recall Miles Garrett was suspended indefinitely, which means for the rest of the regular season, for the rest of the postseason, but indefinitely doesn't mean forever. It means that he's eligible to apply to the NFL for reinstatement for the beginning of next regular season. What's interesting also is that the arbitrator and the person who, who basically heard the penalty said Pouncey, who had three games, is now down to two games. But interestingly enough, he will still miss the rematch, which will happen in two weeks between the Browns and the Steelers. Why was there such a need to get this taken care of now? And why is it not a surprise in the least that Miles Garrett's suspension was upheld? The NFL had a huge incentive to get this out of the news cycle. Just today, news broke that Miles Garrett, during the course of his appeal, brought up the possibility, if not the absolute likelihood, that Mason Rudolph used a racial slur during the fracas, which incited Garrett to rip off his helmet and hit Rudolph over the head with it. The problem with saying that he used a racial slur is that now all sorts of players on the Browns and Steelers have come out and said, that's the first we're hearing of it. We didn't know anything about it. Well, the rule for a player when they get suspended and they go in for an appeal is the, the judge is going to look at all of the evidence that surrounds the event. Is there, are there any mitigating circumstances that could make the penalty given to the player too strong? 
There's two parties at this appeal. It's actually not Garrett, believe it or not. You've got the Players Association representing Garrett, and you also have the NFL. And during that hearing, word came out in testimony that Garrett said, the reason I did this is there was a racial slur. That caused an immediate response from Mason Rudolph and his attorney who denied that that ever took place. So far, only one player is on the record saying that it may have, or if it did, if Garrett says it, I believe it, and that's Odell Beckham Jr. again trying to make himself the news. But all the other players have come out very specifically and said, no, we haven't heard. Why is that a big deal to the NFL? Because it's one thing when they're dealing with violence. You know that they've got violence during the game. They've got violence when the, after the whistle's been blown. What the NFL does not want to deal with is anything racially related. So if you're going to play the race card, you better have evidence to back it up. And it became very clear that Miles Garrett did not have that evidence. Even if he did, my argument is that the suspension would still be upheld because this is something the NFL and the union is not going to fight for. When you've got a players union and a league going head to head when it comes to player suspensions, normally what happens is what happened with Pouncey. When you're suspended three games, they make it two. When an MLB player is suspended five games, they make it four. Ten games, they make it eight. There's always room in there for an independent person to bring it down. But in this situation, the union was not going to fight on behalf of Garrett. The union was not going to choose to die on the hill of Miles Garrett and what he did during that game and the type of publicity it has brought to the NFL. And that is all relevant information. And then Garrett made it worse by playing that card. Who were his advisors and why would they tell him to do that? The answer is they thought that that was his best opportunity to take away the word indefinite from the suspension. It's always better when you don't have to apply for reinstatement. Just ask Pete Rose. You want the ability to have a set number of games. Just the regular season. Just the regular season plus the postseason. Just 20 games. Whatever the number is for a player, that's how to get his career back on track. Problem with Miles Garrett is there's no interest in either the Union or the Browns or the NFL in seeing Miles Garrett's career get back on track. They're trying to get as far away from this situation as possible. So what happens now? The NFL and the Players Union and all the players are going to be instructed on what they should and should not say regarding this situation. The NFL wants this to end. They want the focus to be right back on the field. They are going to quash this entire racial slur situation. And the news cycle, it came out now, and it's already going to be gone. No matter what you hear on Twitter or social media, the players are going to be told that's enough. That's what we would say in our clubhouse once suspensions were handed out and appeals were heard, whether it's on steroids or because of a fight. You stop the story cold in its tracks. What's Miles Garrett's next move? He's got to decide exactly what he's going to do when it comes to repenting. Does he do it with Rudolph? Does he start some sort of charitable endeavor with between the Browns and the Steelers? Wouldn't that be a cold day if those two teams started working together? But something like that is what Garrett and his advisors have to have happen. Because when he applies for reinstatement, the thing that's critical is what level of remorse has he shown And what steps has Miles Garrett taken to show that that was an isolated incident? 
because the NFL has zero interest in anything like this again from any player. And given the way Miles Garrett acted during his suspension hearing, bringing up not just the racial slur, but trying to say that what he did was the same as when another helmet incident took place, where actually there was zero connection made with the other player's head, that was bad advice given to him by his advisors. He should have sat in front of the, of the arbitrator and simply apologized and said it was out of character, called in character witnesses on his behalf, who could have submitted written statements that could have been a part of the evidentiary record and left it at that. Instead, Garrett went a completely different direction. In other breaking news today, we were very, very surprised to see Yasmani Grandal. I could not imagine that Grandal signed that four-year contract that he did. The White Sox gave him $73 million over four years. Yes, that's $73 million, the biggest contract in the history of the Chicago White Sox, was just signed by Asmani Grandal. With all the players the White Sox have had, they choose to put him on their Mount Rushmore of signings. Now, certain of the pundits out there are going to say, what a great signing. He's a switch hitter. This shows the White Sox are serious about building around their young core, and now they can use James McCann to go get some other players, maybe a bullpen arm. Well, my view is... Can you really be serious about winning and pay Jose Abreu and Yasmani Grandal a total of about $36 million? Remember, Grandal is making 18.25, and Abreu accepted his qualifying offer of 17.8. That's over $36 million for those two players. In baseball, if you expect to win, you really should not have one player make up over 25% of your payroll, and a combination of two players, in my opinion, uh, should not make up 30% of your payroll. So now they're looking at $36 million between those two players. How high are the White Sox willing to go? Because in order for them to be competitive in what some would say is a wide-open AL Central, which I disagree with, I think the Twins have a firm hold on that division after what they did last year and how that team is still going to be put together the way it is with Jake Odorizzi still in that rotation along with Jose Barrios. But the White Sox are thinking they have an opportunity there with the Indians on the down. But there's more. And this is a little nugget for everyone about the relationship between the Chicago Cubs and the Chicago White Sox. Think about, for all you New Yorkers, the Yankees-Mets. Do you know the Mets always sort of feel like the ugly stepsister of the Yankees? And they're always looking to see what the Yankees are doing and jealous of the Yankees? Well, that's exactly what happens in Chicago. Now, why Jerry Reinsdorf of the White Sox would feel any jealousy toward the Chicago Cubs is beyond me, given how successful Reinsdorf has been as an owner of the Chicago Bulls with all the jewelry with Jordan, as in six rings. But that said, when Reinsdorf won the World Series in 2005 with the Chicago White Sox, he will tell you that was his proudest moment in sports. More proud than the six championships with Michael Jordan? Yes. In a moment of clarity, he would say that. He wanted a World Series more than anything else. But when you win one, you want two. And the Cubs got theirs first one in 2016, but he saw the Cubs were not going to become the dynasty that everyone thought. So this is his chance to pounce. And between Jimenez, Moncada, and you bringing back Lucas Giolito, who turned into an all-star pitcher, they have an opportunity to be good. But please, White Sox fans, do not think that just Grandal alone is going to get it done. 
My opinion is they need a second-level big league starter as a free agent. That means no Cole, no Strasburg, but look for them to sign a Zach Wheeler type. But to do it, they're going to have to go five or six years and do something that Jerry Reinsdorf is very, very uncomfortable with. So Yasmani Grandal, please frame today's paper, which will say it's the largest contract in franchise history. But I don't think you're going to hold the record for long, because if you do, you'll be watching October's for the next four years at an absolute minimum. Well, yesterday was a day in baseball that I used to love. It's the Crushed Dreams Day. That's what I used to call it. I never minded crushing dreams of players because to become a professional baseball player is hard. And you actually have to be better than good. You have to be the best player on every team you ever played on. And then you only have a chance to make it to the big leagues. And then once you're in the big leagues, you have a pretty small chance of even making it to arbitration, which means you've been in the big league three years. The majority of players are out of big leagues before they even get to three years of service. So why is yesterday my crushed dreams day? Because yesterday's a day when all rosters have to be set around Major League Baseball. It is the deadline for what's called the 40-man roster which is why you saw a flurry of transactions of young players you've never heard of being added to the roster and old players you have heard of who now stink and are overpaid are taken off the roster. Two big examples of that happened. One of them I'm very familiar with. Let's start with that one. The Marlins added some really good players headlined by a pitcher named Sixto Sanchez who they got in the Cardinals deal for Ozuna. They had to add him to the roster. What that means is he's not eligible to be taken by another team when you hear about what's called the Rule 5 draft later in December at the winter meetings. That's like an expansion draft when you can take a player from another team as long as he or she is not protected. Although it's all he's, but we'll talk about later and nothing personal. So in order to add someone to your roster, you have to take someone off because the most players you can have quote-unquote protected is 40. So the Marlins took off a player named Wei-Yin Chen. You may have heard of him. Yes, he was a player signed by me in 2015 to a five-year, $80 million deal. And at the time, that deal was lauded as a great free agent pickup. Except we only wanted to give him four years, which means this year he would have been off the team already. Except he couldn't get anyone out the entire four years. Except... We ended up trading away all the players, selling the team to another entity who traded away the players. That entity, of course, is Derek Jeter. And so the team never materialized into what it was. So the Marlins made the decision to designate Wei-Yin Chen, and they still owe him over $20 million. In the $20 million category is also a player you Yankee fans know very well named Jacoby Ellsbury. But I want you to go back six years ago when you all celebrated vociferously in the streets when the Yankees stole Jacoby Ellsbury away from the Boston Red Sox, the championship Boston Red Sox. Everyone was so excited that you got one over on Boston that you didn't think that a seven-year, $153 million deal, what's the big deal? That's what I love about fans. The day of a signing, you're all happy. And then when the player ends up stinking, you get angry with management. Well, what happened to when you were all happy when we signed him? You were all happy with Ellsbury, but then he was hurt and unproductive in what may be the worst single free agent signing in the history of the Yankees. Yes, in the history of the Yankees. 
then that's saying something. That's like saying Chen is the worst free agent signing in the history of the Marlins. It's not like we've had that many. The Yankees have had plenty. So the Yankees decided they had to protect young players, and in doing so, they released Jacoby Ellsbury. As in $26 million they are paying to Jacoby Ellsbury not to play. $21 million this year and $5 million next year. What does that practically mean? Well, for fans, what you're thinking is Wei-Yin Chen's off the team. Jacoby Ellsbury's off the team. But that's not true. To owners and to team presidents and GMs, they are given a payroll to work with. I always got a payroll from our owner who would say, hey, your payroll can be $80 million. But that doesn't mean the players on the field add up to $80 million. That's the total cost of any check that goes to any player every two weeks. Do you know who's on the Mets payroll to this day that counts toward their major league payroll? Bobby Bonilla. Yes, he's on the Mets payroll to this day. Jacoby Ellsbury is on the Yankees payroll this coming season. And believe me, the Steinbrenner family won't forget the fact that every two weeks, Ellsbury's going to get a million dollars because he's going to get $21 million over the course of the six-month season. Wei-Yin Chen will count toward the Marlins' payroll. So when you hear the Marlins come out and say, hey, look, our payroll is $75 million, just know that means 20 of it is going to Wei-Yin Chen, which might as well simply be flushed down the toilet because you're getting zero, zero performance from that player. We have a segment on uh, Nothing Personal that we started. For anybody who's a movie fan, you may have seen a movie called Half-Baked, We're not going to review it today, but if you haven't seen it, go see it. One of the great things in that movie is everyone wants to talk to Samson. That's the quote. Hey, I want to talk to Samson. Well, all you have to do is DM me on Twitter at David P. Samson. Tell me you want to talk to me and give me a subject to talk about. And I'll take a look and I'll I'll talk about one of them on Nothing Personal. I got one yesterday that was too good. Too good. So it went into the show. So you wanted to talk to Samson. You've got it. Jim Crane, the owner of the Astros, didn't want to talk to anyone at the MLB owners' meetings. And to prove that point, he surrounded himself with security and policemen. So we're going to play a game here. And the game is this. Why would Jim Crane exactly do that when he could have done this? We're going to have a press conference right now. Jim Crane had law enforcement between him and the media. Everything he did was wrong. But I'm going to tell you now what Jim Crane should have done. And I'm going to play two parts here. My regular voice will be the Jim Crane voice. And my voice like this will be the media voice asking Jim Crane questions. It starts like this at an owner's meeting because you have to walk past media. At every owner's meeting, there's a section for the media and you walk past them. Some owners stop, some owners don't. If you want to have a press conference at an owner's meeting, you can do that, just not when the commissioner's talking. So first the media would say, Jim, Jim, Can we have a comment, please? And he'll walk right by. No problem, because he has to walk past the media again the next time. So here it happens. Jim, Jim, any comment on the Astros investigation or what the commissioner just said about the penalties that could be imposed on your team? Well, thank you so much for asking that. I would definitely like to address that. And I would like to start by answering any questions you have. But beforehand, I want to say something to our fans. 
I want to tell you that as owner of the Houston Astros, Jim Crane, me, and my family, we are completely mortified at the possibility that anyone would think that we would do anything to impact the integrity of a Major League Baseball game. We have worked so hard in this community, along with our corporate partners and our great stakeholders and the fans who show every day to Minute Maid Park. We have taken great and painful strides to make sure that we build a sustainable team that can be great for years and years to come and compete for a World Series. I would never do anything possible in order to hurt the relationship between me and you. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Crane, were you aware of a camera in center field? Well, no, of course I was not aware. As the owner of the team, I leave that up to the people who work for me. I can't imagine that there would be a camera in center field that was directly into the dugout, but there's an investigation ongoing right now. But if there were, that is something, of course, I would not know about. Sidebar, this is back to David Sampson. Do you think it's okay for Jim Crane to sell out his president of baseball operations, Jeff Lunau? Or someone below Jeff Lunau? Well, here's how it works in the real world. Someone will take the fall for the camera in center field. If Jim Crane's smart, they will have chosen that person already. And it's not Brandon Taubman who already took the fall for the other issues with the Astros. Someone will have to because the commissioner of baseball is going to do an investigation. And in that investigation, it is critical that someone is blamed for the activity. Just like with the Red Sox in 2017, who were accused and then penalized for, for using electronic equipment to steal signs, it was said first thing by the commissioner, Dave Dombrowski and John Henry and Tom Werner, the heads of the Red Sox, had no idea what was going on. Whether or not you believe it is a whole nother segment. But Jim Crane has got to start the process of laying the blame at someone else's foot. You think that's cowardly? That's called a Tuesday in PR. Someone will take the hit. Back to my press conference. Um, Mr. Crane, if you found out who it was, would you wait for MLB to penalize, or are there, is there something you would do first? Well, thank you. I would like to point out that we are doing our own internal investigation because I find it absolutely upsetting that something like this could have happened. So we are putting a lot more internal controls in. We're using our stadium operations department. We're using our own security department. And if I find out, and I will, exactly how this happened, I will make sure the people responsible for this are let go immediately. Why? Because it is unacceptable to think that we need any unfair advantage in order to win a game. Mr. Crane, would you like to comment on Commissioner Manford saying that the penalties against your team may be the most significant of all time? Well, no, I wouldn't like to comment on that, except I would say that I'm very supportive of Commissioner Rob Manford and in his desire to make sure that the integrity of our game, this is David Sampson, notice I always go back to the integrity of the game. That is the critical word that you have to bridge back to in every PR answer you give. Back to Jim Crane. I absolutely support Commissioner Manford in anything he would do because I know that the integrity of the game is the number one issue and I will be supportive of whatever penalty. Mr. Crane, what if you lose draft picks? I know very well that draft picks are how we made this team. I know who Jeff Lunau has drafted and Ed Wade before him as the GM and I'm aware that we're good because of the draft picks we've made, forgetting Mark Appel, of course, but everyone else. So losing draft picks would hurt but in the overall health of baseball and for the betterment of Major League Baseball, if that's what it takes, 
then that's okay. Mr. Crane, my final question. If you are fined millions of dollars, is it true that that it will be a cut in payroll for the millions of dollars? Well, thank you. That's a very good question. I promise you here today that we will have the payroll that is necessary in order to defend our National League pennant, our American League pennant, our National League pennant. <laughs> what, I'm completely blanking, Coca, because it's that kind of day. I guarantee you that we will defend our American League pennant, and no matter what it takes, I will never take away payroll in order to pay any fine, no matter how substantial, that is brought upon me by Major League Baseball. Are there any other questions? No, thank you, Mr. Crane. Thank you very much for whoever DM'd, but that's how the press conference should have gone. Instead, Jim Crane head behind, hid behind the police. I'm not exactly sure why he would do that, but it simply made him look horrific. In other news today, I can't believe what came out. I was very surprised at this, actually. Uh, Greg Popovich, there was, do you remember last week that Greg Popovich got a, um, thrown out of a game? You know, he's sort of a grumpy guy. He's the longest tenured NBA coach, hugely, hugely successful, plenty of rings. Every once in a while, I just get the feeling, like, like I think it happened on Saturday night. So my general view of it is that I think he was just a little tired, maybe wanted a glass of wine. So he gets himself ejected, and no one thinks anything of it. And the next day it comes out, the Spurs lost the game, and that Tim Duncan ended up taking over as the coach of that game. Now, why is that noteworthy, and why is that a nothing personal segment? It's because of what could have happened, what didn't happen, and what Popovich said about it after, and how contrary it is to everything I know about Greg Popovich. Let me set the scene. Tim Duncan, as you know, retired last year, and he immediately segued into an assistant coach's role for the San Antonio Spurs. Not exactly sure why he would choose to do that. Maybe he was bored. Maybe he didn't want a year off. Maybe he needed the job. I have no idea. Uh, he retired. It's three years ago already, Coca? I can't imagine how time flies. I thought he segued right into the assistant coach's role. So he had two years off and got bored. That why, that's why he became an assistant coach? I've got Coca telling me. So apparently... Tim Duncan's been doing karate and other things to keep himself busy. Be that as it may, it's not relevant to the story. He's an assistant coach, but a first-year assistant coach. He took over as the head coach after the ejection. What normally happens in baseball when a manager gets ejected is the bench coach becomes the manager. In basketball, it's the senior assistant who becomes the head coach during uh, when, when a head coach gets ejected. What was surprising to me is that it didn't work out that way. Tim Duncan, as the first year, took over, and then Popovich gave the reason. And the reason was that he had scouted the Portland Trailblazers, so he was more familiar with the Portland Trailblazers team who they were playing that specific day. I've never heard a bigger crock of crap than that in my life. You're telling me that Tim Duncan takes over because he knows the Trailblazers better than any of the other assistant coaches? Every single assistant coach knows everything about the Trailblazers. That would be like in baseball when our manager gets ejected that we have a pro scout come in and become the manager. Who would ever do that? Yes, if you're laughing at home, it's because you know that we did have a scout who then became a GM, Dan Jennings, become a manager. So you're saying, wow, that's funny that he said that. But no, who would ever have a scout come in and be a manager? So that's what's happening in basketball. Duncan's a first-year assistant who scouted the Trailblazers? Come on. 
Who should it have been? Who could it have been? Anybody heard of Becky Hammond? If you haven't, you should. Becky Hammond is a female assistant coach for the San Antonio Spurs. Becky Hammond has a great career as both a WNBA player and as a longtime assistant for the Spurs. As a matter of fact, she is the most senior assistant right now for the San Antonio Spurs. She would have been the logical choice to become the head coach for that game. Is it possible that Greg Popovich did not want her to have her first ever head coaching job as a replacement coach for a game? Is it possible that he wanted to respect history and have the first woman's head coach happen as an actual head coach to start a season or to replace a fired coach in the middle of a season? Well, Greg Popovich's comments were very bizarre to me. And he said, I'm not interested in history. None of that matters to me. We made the decision that was best for our team. Well, what decision was that, Greg? Greg said, I didn't tell him who was going to be the head coach. When I was ejected, I said to my top three assistants, you all decide. What? Why would Poppy say that? You give the paper and the lineup card to somebody, your bench coach in MLB. You give it to one of your assistant coaches. Who exactly runs the timeouts? Do they have like a huddle and decide? Well, it turns out the assistants did have a huddle and decided that Duncan would be the head coach. But then the story was different, that it was because he had scouted the Trailblazers. And the reason this is so upsetting to me is Greg Popovich is at the forefront of change. He brought in Becky to be an assistant coach when there was not a woman's assistant coach anywhere in the National Basketball Association. And why shouldn't there be a woman's head coach? Why shouldn't there be a woman's assistant head coach? What took so long? Why is it the teams hesitate to hire women to be in positions of power for men, men's professional sports teams? Well, I ran a professional sports team for 18 years, and I can tell you it is a male-dominated culture, and it's something that you try to fight every single day. And it's not that there's a glass ceiling, and it's not that we purposefully say we're not going to hire women. It's the opposite. I would love to have had a woman manager or a woman general manager, except I'm not going to hire a woman just because she's a woman. I'm not going to hire a man just because he's a man. I'm going to hire someone who I think is going to be the best at what he or she is doing at that moment for that team. And Popovich thought enough that he said that Becky is not a woman assistant coach. She's the best assistant coach I could hire at this particular moment, which means she's now in theory on deck to be a head coach. Who is the person, who is the team who is going to make the move to have the first ever woman head coach? I think it could be the Dallas Mavericks. Why would I think the Dallas Mavericks would ever be in a position that they would need to hire? I'm not saying Rick Carlisle's on the block. Don't worry, Rick. What I am saying is the Dallas Mavericks are owned by someone named Mark Cuban, who I have a tremendous amount of respect for. And I'm gonna tell you a story about Mark Cuban and why he's not allowed to be an owner in Major League Baseball. That already, as it is, is going to be something that's bizarre. But Mark Cuban is someone who has always, when he came in the game, right now we're seeing video, and you could be seeing video, but if you're listening, we're we're looking at one of his new players named Luka Doncic. Um, You're aware that Luka Doncic is the youngest player ever to have the type of triple-double that he had last night. 
He had, in 26 minutes, he had 35 points as part of his triple-double. That's never happened before. You're talking about a young player who's making history. Now, why is it so interesting to me that Luka Doncic is a maverick? Because do you remember how he got there? It was a draft day trade where the Mavericks and the Hawks switched Doncic and Trey Young with the Atlanta Hawks. Now, why would Mark Cuban be willing to make that trade? My contention is that Mark Cuban is willing to do anything, no matter how outside the box, in order to make sure that he has a chance at a winning team. Sometimes he goes too far, and that's what we're going to get to. But in the meantime, think about Dirk Nowitzki, the most famous maverick of all time, the best maverick of all time, one of the best NBA players of all time, one of the best European players in the history of the National Basketball Association. Mark Cuban had no problem having a very diversified roster, even before diversified rosters were something that were very common. Back in the day of Drazen Petrovic, there were definitely Shrunas Marshallonis. Yeah, I'm going old school. There were European players on teams, Tony Kukoc on the championship bulls. But what Mark Cuban did when he bought the Mavericks is he immediately built a culture of inclusion and he made it a player's culture. He was the first owner who redid the locker room in order to give all of them, all of his players, huge spaces, which all sorts of electronic equipment. He was the first owner to sit right on the bench while his team was playing. He was the first owner to have a locker in the clubhouse, to practice with his team, to cheer like a fan from the first row, not the owner's box, to sign autographs to maybe have a little facial work done if you've watched Shark Tank recently. Have you noticed that? Yes, I have too. But what makes Mark Cuban so interesting is that he's willing to question the way things have always been done, and he's willing to do things differently in a way that most owners would never dream of, because most owners are interested in protecting the worth of their asset, not in growing it if it's possible that by growing it, you're taking chances that could diminish it. It's a very subtle difference is what I'm talking about. Everyone wants to grow their business, but sometimes you have to risk shrinking it to grow it. Most owners won't do it. Mark Cuban would. So Mark Cuban goes in and he is uh, he's very outspoken, let's say that, very willing to give his opinion and very willing, willing to do things that no one's done, which is why I believe he would be the first owner to actually hire a female head coach if that woman, like a Becky Hammond, were qualified, which she is. But that very nature of his personality is what made him a non-candidate to buy a Major League Baseball team. But boy, did he want to buy one. And I was around when votes were being counted, and I know that Mark Cuban could not get 23 votes to become a new owner. Just today, Joel Sherman became the new owner of the Kansas City Royals, replacing David Glass, who had been there for well over 20 years. Well, Joel Sherman is a local guy, very down the middle. He is going to tow the company line as MLB goes into a labor negotiation. There aren't going to be any problems. MLB's view of Mark Cuban is that he would not be that way, that he would be problematic, and that he would do things that would not exactly be in lockstep with other owners. The reason it never bothered me is unless Mark Cuban has seven friends I don't care if he dances naked in the middle of the street. He can't impact one thing that we do as Major League Baseball. You need 23 owners 
to effectuate change, which means all you need eight to block. There's 30 total owners. So a 22 to eight vote means that nothing happens. In order for a new collective bargaining agreement or in order for anything to happen in baseball, a new commissioner, 23 votes. Mark Cuban's only one vote. So why is it that he wouldn't be a good member of the fraternity of which I was once a part of and no longer am? Because from the beginning, he would be a thorn in the side of the commissioner and everyone in the commissioner's office and every other owner because he would be aggressively pursuing change in the game. Change that's needed. Change that I think would have been incredible for him to help effectuate. But baseball is stuck thinking that the change they need is change that can come from within. It cannot. It's got to come from outside. And what Mark Cuban's able to do, the relationship with his players, his ability to think outside the box and to take chances where others won't, that's what makes him so successful. And that's what makes him such a good owner. And I believe that's what will make him the first to employ a female NBA head coach. I watched a movie last night that uh, I love watching. And the reason I love watching it is that uh, it makes me feel good every time I watch it. It's a movie called Shakespeare in Love. It won an Academy Award Best Picture. If you haven't seen it, you should. If for no other reason, then you're going to learn a lot about Shakespeare. Because it is the story of William Shakespeare and how the play Romeo and Juliet, the comedy tragedy Romeo and Juliet, how it sort of came to pass. But inside Shakespeare and Love are about 75 Shakespearean references that to me are perfect. And then one last night, and I've seen this two dozen times, the one that I came up with last night that I'd never heard was a term called happy hour. They're in the, they had just finished a rehearsal for the play they were doing, Romeo and Juliet. And wouldn't you know it, uh, they went to a pub afterward and the head of the production, the director, if you will, looked at his cast and said, oh, happy hour. And I thought, are you kidding me? <clears throat> That's where happy hour started? You know happy hour because we're all there every day. And if you're not, you should be. Even if you're just drinking juice, happy hour is supposed to make you happy. I thought it just meant discounted drinks. It turns out that happy hour was coined by Shakespeare in King Henry V. And the quote was, therefore, my lords, omit no happy hour. And it was referring to a period of time during the play King Henry V. But then the U.S. Navy used the term happy hour long before we did for our corner pub. And the U.S. Navy used it having nothing to do with alcohol. They used happy hour as an hour at sea for all of the sailors to, use, to have enjoyment and distraction. It was called the happy hour to take away from the banality of living on a small ship for months and months at a time. No alcohol, just a happy hour. So when you're watching Shakespeare in Love, make sure you watch with your browser open. Now, if you've got Shakespeare's annotated quotes, you may want that too because there are over 1,400 phrases that Shakespeare started and that you use today, but you just don't know it. So I'll see you all at happy hour. You know, I, uh, during my course with the Marlins, I had, uh, I, w I, was, I will admit that there were some controversies that I was a part of, and I will admit that I uh, 
I said and did things that some people may not have liked. But one time, uh, it's more than one time, actually, and, and I'm, I'm going to talk about something serious. Uh, I received death threats, and I, I, I didn't take them seriously the first couple times, but then I had to take them seriously because uh, I had to get security involved in MLB, and I had to have security. And I had to explain to my family, I had to tell them that there were death threats. I had to explain why, and it was always because of a trade I had made or something I would said or a, a bad signing or something baseball-related or something like that. But when I received the death threats, what I couldn't understand is what is it about someone who gets on a computer, and they were always via email, on social media, what is it about someone who is so willing to hide behind a screen and a veil of anonymity that gives them the courage to say something they would never say to someone's face, let alone do? What is it about people that allows them, whether it's in a comment section of a post or wherever it may be, that gives them the cyber courage to do what is actually a crime? Well, it happened again, and it happened after the Brown-Steelers game, except it wasn't about Miles Garrett, and it wasn't about Mason Rudolph, and it wasn't about even the Browns or the Steelers. Instead, it was about a player who we didn't talk about, whose name is Demarius Randall. Yes, if you remember, we talked about that game. We talked about the violence that took place. We talked about the hit that he put upon Deontay Johnson. Do you remember when he was laid out, when he was bleeding out of his ear? We thought he was unconscious. Turns out that, do you really think Randall intended to do that? I'll debate it. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I'm going to take his word for it that he didn't. What I do know is that yesterday, Randall came out and said that he's been receiving death threats over the hit. Could someone explain to me right now why you would send a death threat? I hope you're listening to Nothing Personal, and I hope that you're paying attention to this. Explain to me why you think that's okay. And I'm not going to blame Randall for what he said, because he's right to come out and say, how come it is that I can't respond? Because when I do respond and I say something about violence, I get, I get suspended or I get released. There was a former Browns player this year who got released for inappropriate tweets. Is it because I'm held to a higher standard? I don't want to hold players to a higher standard. I want to hold everyone to that higher standard. It's not okay to send a death threat. It hurts the person. That's real. Do you think it's nice to walk around thinking about every corner that it could be that person looking in someone's eye? I've done it. It doesn't feel good. And I'm small. I'm 5'5", about 130 pounds. Randall's not small. But do you think that makes him any less scared? It does not. Before you go online and say something that A is a crime or B is so wholly inappropriate that you would not have the courage to say it to someone's face, just hit the delete button because you're impacting families for absolutely no reason. Well, we do picks every day. Did everyone take the Raptors yesterday? Did everyone notice what happened with the Raptors? Yes, the Raptors completely covered I'm not sure if you were paying attention or watching the game. They crushed the Grizzlies, and I'm hot. I wanted to go with the NFL game. It's a great Thursday night game. 
The reason, though, I'm not willing to go with the NFL game, even though I'm going to watch it, is because something happened in the NBA that came out at me. When I'm giving you my picks, I'm giving them to you for a reason. The reason I think there's a, a value mistake where the line is just not where it should be, whether it's an over-under, whether it's a point spread or a money line. I'm looking at all of those things for every game for you. And I saw one that's happening tonight that obviously must be a typo, and it's possible I'm going to hear in my ear that the line is different. But right and it was just changed on my sheet. Thank you. The Suns are minus four over the Pelicans. Why is it that that line is so low? The Pelicans are really the Lakers part deux, right? They traded their entire team to get uh, uh, to the Lakers for, an- for Antonio Davis. So whenever I see the Pelicans play, all I do is I hear about Lakers players. Anthony Davis, I call him Antonio every day. Thank you, Coca. One more time, tell me it's Anthony Davis, please. I will never refer to him as Antonio again, I promise. But the Pelicans, for whatever reason, they beat Carmelo Anthony's Trailblazers. And what I'm finding about these lines is that the trend, the expression, the trend is your friend, I'm finding that people, the odds makers, are putting so much weight on a previous game or on a previous result. So just because the Pelicans crushed the Trailblazers doesn't mean they should only be getting four points. They've got to be getting way more than that from the Phoenix Suns. This is a slam dunk Phoenix Suns win tonight. So take them. We also do a wait to see every day, and we give you a uh, what's going to happen in the world of sports, and we're going to give you complete accountability. We're going to tell you when I'm right, and we're going to tell you when I'm wrong. Well, I got one for you that is a guaranteed wait to see. We did a whole segment yesterday on the Tottenham Spurs and how they have a new coach named Jose Mourinho. Well, Jose Mourinho is known as the turnaround specialist. He comes in and makes an immediate difference. He's the type of coach who makes a good team great. And now Tottenham is ranked 14th right now in the Premier League. This is a critical game for them against the 15th or 16th ranked West Ham. This game is played on Saturday at 7.30 a.m. Wake up, because wait to see, the Spurs are guaranteed to win Saturday. It's not a pick. Don't wait to wager it. It's simply a wait to see. As I talk to you about everything that happened today with Miles Garrett and with his suspension, and I think about what it, what it means for him and what's going on in the NFL head offices right now, I'm reminded of something that I'm positive that they are saying to themselves this very second. It's just business, Miles. It's nothing personal. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.